Thank you for coming in today's podcast. Appreciate you. God bless you. Thank God it's Friday. I'm Fernando Alcoholic. I got my friend here, Rick, and we're going to be doing reading the big book. Since it's Friday, we're going to do the Page 86, the one our sponsor tells us to read every day. But let's go ahead and open with this serenity prayer, please. God, God grant me the serenity, me serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Okay, let's go ahead. Page 86 says, on awakening, uh, on awakening of the AA Big Book, on awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is clear of wrong motives. Pass. Go ahead, Rick. Uh, when thinking about our day, we face in decisions where we may be able to determine which course to take. Here's where we ask God for inspiration and a tool of thought or decision. We relax. We take it easy. We don't struggle. We're often surprised how right the answers come after we try this for a while. What used to be the hunch of occasional inspiration gradually becomes working part of the mind. Being is still an experience and having just made conscious contact with God, it's probable that we're going to be inspired all the time. We may pay for the presumption of all sorts of obscured actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find our thinking will come as time passes to be more on the plane of inspiration and come to rely upon it. We usually, what used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. I just read that one. Oh, you did? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Ah, we usually conclude that, that's what I said, the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be. That we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. We ask especially for freedom from self-will. And are careful to make no requests for ourselves only. We may ask for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. We are careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have done that and we see that it doesn't work. Wasted a lot of time. You can easily see why. Pass. Circumstances warrant. We ask our wives, our friends, to join us in morning meditation. Well, God, we're friends to join us in morning meditation. If we belong to religious domination, which requires definite morning devotion, we attend that also. If not members of religious bodies, we sometimes select and memorize a few set prayers, which emphasize the principles we have been discussing. There are many helpful books out there. Suggestions of these may be obtained by one's priest, minister, or rabbi. Be quick to see where religious people are right. Make use of what they have to offer. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or actions. We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show. Humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, Thy will be done. We are... are, then, in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions, <clears throat> we become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly, as we did 
when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. It works. It really does. Amen. Let's go ahead and go to page 63 and do this. Uh, we were now at step three on the prayer, please. 63? Yes. <clears throat> the second paragraph. We are now in step three. Many of us said to our makers, we understood of God, I offer myself to thee, you with me and do with thee thou wilt. Relieve me of bondage of self that I may a bit better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victor over them. They bear witness to those who I have helped of thy power, thy love, thy way of life. May I do thy will always. We thought well before taking this step to make sure we were ready to abandon ourselves utterly to him. Page 76, please. When ready, we say something like this. My creator, I am now willing that he should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go off from here to do your bidding. Amen. We have then completed step seven. Amen. Okay, that go ahead and concludes our reading for today. I'm going to read one more passage and then we will close with the Lord's Prayer because it's Friday. We've done our work all week long. Now we're going to get out there and have some fun. <laughs> I like um, the okay prayer on page 416. It says, Okay, God, it is true that I, of all people, strange that it may seem, and even though I didn't give my permission, really, really am an alcoholic of sorts, and it's all right with me. Now what am I going to do about it? When I stopped living in the problem and began living in the answer, the problem went away from that moment on. I have not had a single compulsion to drink. Amen. That's one of the reasons why I say prayers instead of going rehearsing my problems. If I rehearse my problems, they get to grow and give me fear and get on my shoulders, especially the uh, credit cards. I got to pay my credit cards. I got to do this. I got to do that. Screw all that. It doesn't work. What works for me is saying these prayers and busting those up, busting those that stuff up, and then uh, treating myself kindly that, you know, I'm a human being, I'm going to make mistakes. And with this program here, the outlook is, is rosy and is proven to put stuff on the table. All right, I, I'm Fernando, I'm an, I have problems with alcohol. Rick, would you go ahead and lead us in the, in the Lord's Prayer or start it off? Who's... Do you have any, anything to add to today's reading? No. All right, let's go ahead and enjoy this week weekend. May everyone be blessed. And thank you for coming on here. Let's go ahead and close it with the Lord's Prayer, please. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread and... Forgive us of our trespasses. We are our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Them, the power, the glory, forever, ever. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you so much for coming on, Rick. Appreciate you helping I'll, me with my I'll request. talk to you in a few days. All right. Well, you know, I'll give you a call. I'll give me a call as soon as I can. Okay. I'll go ahead and take, take it easy Bye. then. I'll see you. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. God bless you. I handed out one of the last things was one of the things my my sponsor made me do. Just for today, I will do two things I don't want to do just for practice.
and I will do something for someone else that if it gets found out, it doesn't count. That's a way to teach yourself how to be unconditionally loving. Do something nice for somebody. You know, and you're just dying inside. You want to let somebody know. That's selfishness. You know? When we offer love, we offer our life. Interesting. Are we prepared to give it? When another offers love, he offers his life. We have, have we the grace to receive it? Some of us can give love, but we can't receive it. We don't want the connection. When, we, when love is offered, God is there. Uh, have we received him? Love is giving of yourself. Unless we do, our progress will be lost. Each one owes the gift of a second life to, uh, of sobriety to every other human being he meets in the ceaseless presence of God and especially to other alcoholics who suffer. If it is truly beautiful, uh, then it is the way of love. It is the way of AA. It is the will of God as we understand him. And then you get to write out a vision for love in your life. I'm going to hand out two sheets. First sheet is uh, humility in the seven-step exercise. There's several quotes from the 12 and 12 at the top that specifically deal with, with humility. It's exactly like the third step exercise. We take the seven step prayer, we break the seven step prayer into pieces. And we take a look and you ask yourself the questions about what each piece of the seven step prayer looks like. All right. At the same time, I'm going to hand out an exercise on the ninth step prayer. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the ninth step prayer, if you go to page 83 in your big book, At the end of the first paragraph of 83.1, it says, so we clean house with the family. Interesting. We're in a clean house with our family on a daily basis. This is kind of an ongoing amend. Asking each morning in meditation that our creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindness, and love. So that's what I was talking about, about getting a vision in my mind. When I do my 10 and 11 in the morning and I'm getting ready to go out and start my day, what does it look like for God's will in my life? Well... I need to do this. I need to. Know, what is what is the way of patience? How am I going to show patience in my life today? What is it going to look like? Well, this morning when I got up, my way of patience was going to be when I'm on a break and I really want to run to the men's room and somebody comes up with that really important question and they, it's hurting in their life and they want to ask me. I don't just blow them off. I stop and I hold my bladder. Or, you know, that's patience. That's tolerance. That's kindness and love. All in that's being young. <laughs> That, that's all in one, all right? It, it encompasses it all. It's when you really really want to run out there and get be first in line and get, get dinner, and instead somebody comes up to you and says, hey, you know, uh, I got a question. I've never been through the steps, and I know you live near me. Would you take me through a four-step and a fifth-step, and you bother to share some information and some experience and accept that responsibility, and that means you get later in line, and you get a position down line a little bit further, you know? Really important stuff. Uh this is the test for your sobriety. How willing are you guys? Are you willing to take these ex these exercises home with you and write out these visions? How well do you want to get? I tr Trust me on this. It's my guarantee to you. If you do this stuff, you will be a changed person, a changed individual. This stuff has the power to change lives. More importantly, not your life. It changes the lives of the people around you. It's really, really important stuff. How many of you have ever looked at a flashbulb or looked at the sun for too long and when you close your eyes, you got that dot? I don't know any other way to describe it. You get the dot, right? One of the things that I like to do 
is to do a love light meditation. I get close my eyes and I imagine that dot. And if I'm having a hard time imagining the dot, then I look up at the light for a second and I make the dot. It's a real cheap way, you know? Don't look at it for too long, but you can close your eyes and get the dot in your eye. You only have to look at it for 10 seconds to get the dot, all right? And then I close my eyes and I go into a, that breathing meditation that we did last night. I start breathing. I sense the air coming in through past my nostrils and go down into my stomach. When the, at the very bottom, as the air is just about to start the, the exhale, start up the backside, that's the place that I imagine the dot moving to. And the love starts to grow. And that dot becomes the love, the love light that I know is inside me that God gives me. And next thing you know, it starts getting bigger and bigger. And then I imagine that light moving up and down through my torso and down through my legs and up through the top of my head until the whole time I'm, I'm wrapped in that love. Once I'm wrapped in that love, then I start thinking about people in my life. And I start sending, I imagine a hand and like little electrodes coming out of there, electricity, light starts shooting out and I send the, the light, it fills up the entire room and then I start sending it to the people that I love. Send it to my wife, to my kids, and more importantly, I send it to the people that I refuse to forgive. I send it to the people that I hate. I send it to the people that I'm having a hard time with. I send it to the people that are sick, that I know that are infirmed. You can send the love light to anywhere you want. The important thing is that you just send it. You don't keep it. You just send the love out. I mean, there's a friend of mine, Carrie. I, thought, I think she's here. I saw her earlier, I think. Uh, one day she called me up. And she's like, what in the heck are you doing to me? She goes, every time I close my eyes and try to pray meditate, I get a vision of you in my head. Would you knock it off? And I had been sending her these love light meditations. Suddenly she was in a lot of pain. You know, I had been the same, sending the same thing to her fiance, to Pat, at the same time. And both of them were feeling it. You know, it was it, it will get through and healing will take place in you and in them. You know, um, so one of the things that we're going to do when we come back tonight, after we start talking about forgiveness, is we're going to do a love light meditation. So I'm not going to take the time here. We've got 22 minutes. We've covered a lot. We've been drinking from the firehouse. So we're going to open up the mics. It's your retreat. Any shift that you've had, anything you've talked about, anything questions you have, we've got 20 minutes. At 5 o'clock, the tapes are going to shut off. We're going to shut off. I'm going to run up to, to Bill's grave and do a little prayer meditation up there and thank Bill for this experience tonight and then come back and have supper with a grateful heart. So uh, the retreat, unless you got, you got something more you want to say, retreat is yours. Hand that woman a mic. Hi, everybody. My name is Stephanie, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Stephanie. And I, I really want to share an experience that I have had with this. I think it's important when when they talk and you have had an experience. It's it's um. Uh, I was 35 when I had my first child, and um, he was absolutely the the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And um, and I had a role. I want you all to know that I really understood when he was talking about that we had great attachment to a role. And um, I had waited since, since I was a young teenager to be a mother. And um, I was finally this mother. And my whole life was devoted to being a good mother. And um, when he was 14 years, and, and I had a, um, I want you all to know that I went out and I found the healthiest, 
best AA man I could find, and I snatched him. And um, he didn't know what happened. And uh, <laughs> and I, I really, in all honesty, um, had such an ulterior motive. I wanted a man who believed in God, I wanted a sober man, and I wanted a man who wanted to have children, and he fit the bill. I mean, love didn't even go into it. Um, and that's as honest as I can get, and I've made amends to him for that. But anyway, we had this beautiful child, and I left a, a job, and I was um, the role. I was the role. I lived the role every night. I just went to bed and thanked God that I had this role of being this child's mother. And um, and when he was 14, and this, this wonderful man and I did not make it, surprise, surprise, and um, when my son was four, our son was 14, he decided he wanted to go live with his father. And um, he had, had um, four months of not sleeping. And the last two weeks of that four months, he didn't eat. And it was a self-imposed crisis because he was 14 and he needed to be with his dad. And he couldn't leave this mother who had made him his life. He just couldn't do it. He couldn't come to me and say, Mom, I need to leave. So he had to create a crisis. And he did. And um, in the middle of the night, this is the God's honest truth, Mother's Day night. It was, he was crying hysterically because he wasn't going to sleep and he was going to have to get up the next morning to go to school and it was a nightmare. And I just looked at him and I said, honey, is there, life isn't meant to be like this. Is there anything I can do? And that was the unconditional love because I had been praying, I had been working. I, had, I went to Allen on seven days a week that, at this point. And um, he said to me, grace of God, I swear to God, he looked me in the eye and he says, Mom, I need to go live with my father. And I'll tell you, God took over and I was able to look at him and say, is this what this is all about, honey? And he said, I need to go live with my dad. And I said, you'll be there tomorrow night. And I'll tell you, I don't know where that came from. I don't, it came from the, the deepest, best part of who I was. And he was, he's lived there now two and a half years. And I mourned like I have never mourned anything in my life, even more than booze, food, everything. I mourned losing that role of being a mother. And um, all I can say is that I had the fellowship of AA and Al-Anon behind me. And um, today, two and a half years later, we have the most awesome relationship. Um, so I just wanted to share that experience because I know what it is to be very, very invested in being, a, a, you know, having this, um, this title, this purpose to your life. And um, anyway, thanks. You get the mic over there? Hi. Hi, I'm Helen. I'm an alcoholic. Um, this may get a little emotional. Um, um,
Two weeks ago tonight, exactly at this time, I tried to commit suicide. Um, as you can see, a miracle happened that didn't work, because I'm sitting right here. But that's not what I wanted to share. I wanted to go back to the first step. My, I got a new sponsor, and we have been, I had never worked the steps, and that was my downfall. But I get a new sponsor, and she has been working the steps with me. And she kept asking me, I'm a binge drinker, I don't drink every day. And that was the reason for my insanity of killing myself last week. Because I, the drink kept telling me it wasn't going to kill me. And I didn't want to drink anymore, so I knew I had to kill myself. And that was it. But anyway, she said we had to work in the first step. And I have been working that first step for two weeks. And she kept saying to me, we have to find what makes you pick up the first drink. And I found that here today. Whenever I had a problem or anything, I would go pick up that first drink. And I could put the first drink and the second drink down and then call people and tell them what my problems were. And today I found where my biggest mistake was. I should never have had the first drink and called my other sponsor and given my problems. I should have went right to God and worked the steps and I wouldn't have to have been put in the situation of almost suicide. And that's what I got here today and that's a miracle in itself. That I know today that if I don't work those steps, I don't stand the chance. And trust me, I will work those steps. Thanks. You send the mic all the way to the back to the sailor. He knows who he is. Caught you with your mouthful, huh? <laughs> My name is Ron and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Ron. I got sharing with Dave uh, before we started this last session. And I, I, I like to sail and I live down in Florida. It was during a time of my life when I was really totally into self, even though I was, as we were talking for the last day here, in the program, going to meetings and thinking I was on the right path. Anyways, I, uh, I was at the dock one day and uh, at the boat yard that I kept my boat and the sailboat pulled in from France. It was about a 35 footer. There was a young couple on there. And all sorts of people were trying to talk to him. So I waited till they get the boat out of the water because they had some damage. And a couple of days went by and I decided to go over and talk up to them. They were on the top of the boat doing some fixing. And he spoke back to me with this, with a French accent, speaking English. And I said to him, uh, just trying to be friendly, I says, uh, where did you come from? And he says, we, we came from uh, sea. And I says, uh, how did you get over here? Did you use GPS? Oh, he said, no GPS. I says, did you use the sextant? Oh, he says, no sextant. And I says, well, how did you come over here? He says, uh, with the compass. And so I said to him, I says, well, you must have got lost. Oh, he says, we got lost a lot. And then he looked at me like a look that I've never forgotten because was, I was standing down there and he says, but that's the only time when we were free. And I never forgot that. I just thought I'd pass that on to you guys. The times when we think we're lost 
as I have felt myself lost and in between things and, and really not connected to God or connected to anybody, is, is truly the only time I'm okay. I'm free. I'm not really lost. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Got 13 minutes. Who's next? Anybody want to share? Oh, I'm sorry. We got one. Yeah. What's the question? Okay. We have a question. Hang on a sec. What did you mean when you said that um, that there is no opposite of love? There is about hate, love. I kind of didn't get that. That's for you. <laughs> you made a statement. <laughs> love has no opposite. Love has no opposite. I, I don't know how else to say it other than that. Um, I use a relationship. If in a relationship with a person, um, you have demonstrated what you would call both love and hate, I submit that it's not love, because love has no opposite. Because love never asks for anything uh, uh, in return. Um, so that's what I meant when I say say that love has no opposite. And and hate is not the opposite of love because hate is just an extreme attachment. You are so passionate about whatever your attachment is that you cannot let it go. You're if you want to put it in the terms of the theater of the lie, the character in your head is is fighting for its life to be right, whatever it happens to be. It's so much so that you feel like your physical being is going to die unless you win whatever that point it happens to be. That has absolutely nothing to do with love. Love is. Just is. You know, does that make sense? It's like evil is also not the opposite of love. You know, Evil is, is very similar to hate. They, they, they run very similar to each other. Does that make sense? I see a lot of strange looking faces. True, true evil, if there is such a thing, virtually it's always, I don't know any example that I can think of off the top of my head that's not perpetrated by a human being exercising their self-will over whatever happens to be to try to form a position of getting whatever it is that they want, whether it's dominance by causing pain or control or taking a life. It's all about what their plan is. There's absolutely nothing to do with love. It's about acting out. It's a complete form of selfishness. In the same way that the dependence on another human being, we call that love. It's not love at all. A lot of blank stares. Am I making sense? Experientially, I think we're stirring the pot here. This is a very good point for people to be looking at. That's why this love vision is going to be very strong for you. It's going to force you to separate the wheat from the chaff and really take a look at what love truly is. Love any, any concept that you ever hear, including the ones in the big book, lay your personal experience alongside. Test them. Your personal experience has far more power than any belief system you have. So that, for me, is always a lit, litmus test. Like one time I'm talking to a priest and he wants to tell me what's going to happen when I leave this body, right? <laughs> And uh, I said to him, uh, do you have any personal experience with that? <laughs> and he said, no. And I said, oh, so it's a theory. He said, yes. And I said, 
Sorry, Father, don't misunderstand me, but I'm not interested in your opinion about what might happen to me. Because it's his opinion. Spiritual life's not a theory. I have to live it. Now, uh, I sense from then, I've met a man in Austin, Texas, who's had three near-death experiences. I listened very intently to what that man had to say to me. So, anything, that, any concepts, including the ones in the book, lay your experience alongside him to determine truth. See? You had a question? You're, I think you're on. Am I on? Yeah. Hi, I'm Pat. I'm from Long Island. Okay. Um, I wanted to tell you about what uh, I found particularly interesting about today. Um, I have uh, been to two rehabs in the past six years, and um, I never... Uh, um, I never put together more than like six months. Um, I've been vigilant about going to AA, um, and I have friends in AA, um, but this, this year something changed for me, and um, this week I'll have a year, for the first time in six years. All right. Thanks. Um, one thing that I found out about today is that I have a lot of work to do to keep it. And um, I met somebody a couple of weeks ago, or I, I know somebody a long time, and they told me a couple of weeks ago that they had three first years. <laughs> so if I did this for three first years, six years each time, it'll be almost 20 years that it'll take me to finally get sober, and I don't think I'll live through it. Um, I picked a sponsor six years ago that required no work from me. And I think I did it intentionally at the time because I didn't want anybody to give me work to do. Um, I, um, I've always been uh, very independent and I don't take direction very well. And uh, I think it was to my, my detriment. You wouldn't be alcoholic, would you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, after one of a number of relapses, um, I finally told her that I think I need to start doing step work. And I was pretty sure that I had, you know, done, well, I, I, I know that I did up to four and five at rehab. I had been at Hazelden at, and at the Karen Foundation. And six years ago and three years ago. Um, but, um, uh, and I thought that I had admitted powerlessness. Um, we sort of, I guess I thought we had done one through three, or I had done one through three enough at rehab. Um, she never reminded me that we hadn't really done it together or gave me any work to do. And um, after a, a very miserable relapse, I said to her, you know, I think that I better do a fourth and fifth step, so I did. And um, I felt better after doing the fourth and fifth step. Um, in um, I only started coming up here to the, the Wilson House this year. I've been skiing up here for 25 years and drinking up here for, for 20 years. Um, I came up this year for my sponsor's 19th anniversary and, and stopped at the Bill Wilson House to visit and went to Bill Pittman's Drop the Rock seminar in November. So I did some sixth and seventh work with uh, him then. And I had no idea what any of the steps meant, really. You know, I, I, I wasn't given any direction. And um, 
what I'm hearing from a lot of the people here and you guys and all your sponsees that have come with you is that it, there's a lot of work involved and there's a blueprint and there's directions and that that's what people do. <laughs> I go to a lot of meetings. I go probably, uh, I can't tell you how many 90s and 90s I've done. And um, one thing that changed about me this year is that I, I was so lonely and miserable last year that I decided to make AA like my life and I left my job and uh, concentrated on the people that I know in AA, um, spending all my time with people from AA. And, and still, there was no direction like for step work. I go to probably four different AA groups in uh, Oyster Bay, Long Island, and the step work that we do is just you open up a step book and you read around the rooms and people give a little feedback and that's it. That's the only thing I ever knew about step work. So, um, um, I think I'm going to be a lot more conscientious about finding a step sponsor and doing the work. And uh, that's what I got out of this. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Yeah, there's you're right on the right track. You need, you need somebody to take you through the steps out of the big book. You know, Mark always says, don't let anybody read your big book for you. Where, where are we getting these concepts, these 90 and 90s? It's not written in my book. It's not part of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Is it good advice? Yeah, they're not going to hurt you. But you don't know if the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is going to work until you work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That means if you haven't finished all your amends, I hate to tell you, but you haven't worked the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You have no idea whether the program is going to work or not. You know, that's what this whole deal is about. Once you've done all of the all of the 12 steps, every piece of all of the 12 steps, then you can tell me whether it works or not. You know, that's the real deal. If anybody's got a burning desire, we can do one more, or here's the deal. Tonight there's a meeting here. So we're going to have to clear out all of our books and pamphlets and stuff because there's a regular A meeting here. I'd love to turn that into an exercise and say, we've all been camped out pretty much in the exact same places. We're, we're like, we make our little nests. So why don't we try, instead of brushing our teeth with the other hand or combing our hair, let's move somewhere completely different and not sit next to somebody we know and introduce ourselves and, and find a new nest you know, uh, since we have to move all our stuff out of here anyway. And um, for those of you who want to meet me up at the uh, up at Bill's grave, we're going to go straight up there and uh, and then come back here and eat dinner. Okay, well, come with me. I'll get you right. I'm Dave. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, a number of people, uh, the first night, were asking about uh, Fellowship of the Spirit, the thing that Mark and I did last July. Uh, John drove up here specifically from Long Island to bring copies of that up. So there are copies available now. They, we, they do have them here. If you're interested, there's only a couple copies. So if, be, be selfish and go, <laughs> go grab them if you get got a chance, if you really want them. The other thing is that some people asked about um, the Master Series. Glenn has them on 94-minute tapes, which isn't compatible. He's going to have to burn them onto something different. So if you talk to him and you're really interested in those things, he'll, he can get those to you eventually. Um, what else was I going to say? Um, oh, the 50-50. Uh, uh, I know there's a contingent of people that have to leave to catch the ferry uh, to go back to Nantucket. I hope you wrote your name and your phone number and stuff on those tickets. If you didn't come see us and we'll coordinate to make sure if you if you hit it we have a way of contacting you.
because uh, we'll do that tomorrow morning. Uh, give away the two tape sets that Glenn has uh, offered to put up, and and uh, and then do the 50/50. Um, what else? I hate being as discombobulated, but I don't get a choice, right? Uh, how'd you guys do with swapping seats? Anybody find it difficult? <laughs> uh, I didn't think so. Um, tonight is the uh, the thing that we've been talking about all weekend is is, is the deal on forgiveness. Um, there, since people are going to be leaving, I don't know if we're going to get to it tonight, but I want to make sure that all the handouts go out tonight because I know some people aren't going to be able to be here in the morning. So I am going to hand out the... Uh, <clears throat> this is something that... that uh, I don't know if I told the story or not. Uh, there's a guy who's who's got a very interesting ministry, and he was he was running a retreat for a bunch of men and and for this for this church group. And uh, without the men realizing it, he called a secret meeting and invited all the wives to show up. And he got them all in a room and he handed out a thing and he said, "Listen, if you could have the perfect husband, what would you want? Write it down." So all the women wrote it down, and he got a couple women volunteers to collate the whole thing and put it together. And they came up with 10 bullet statements for what women want. <clears throat> then when it came time for the weekend retreat, he got all the husbands together for this weekend retreat. And they thought they were going to have this powerful spiritual experience. And he said, hey, boys, here's what I did. I spoke to your wives, and here's what they want. And they spent the entire weekend retreat, three days, focusing on how to turn these 10 bullet statements into a vision. Of course, I didn't believe it. So I took this thing home, and I gave it to my wife. I said, honey, what do you think about this? You know, is, is this a bunch of hooey or what? And she took a look at it and she read it and she goes, no, this is good. Where'd you get this? <laughs> so I brought one copy with me up here and I figured I'd print, print some. I brought a printer with me and of course I, my printer's not working. So I, I took it downtown and I walk into the, the copying station there and there's there's this woman behind the counter. I said, I need 100 copies. And she goes, well, I can't do it right this second. But, I'll, you know, I said, well, is you doing it right if I come back in about 10 minutes? And she said, sure. So I go off and do what I want, and this time I go back, and Brenda had hooked back up with me, and I'm walking in, this time I'm with my wife, and as she looks up, I, I look her in the eye, and I said, I could see something different about her, and she had this little smirk on her face, and I said, did you read that? <laughs> and she said, yes, I did. She goes, that's good. <laughs> so virtually every woman that I've interfaced with that has read these things likes them, so... If you guys want, I'll do this very discriminatory and I will only issue it to the guys and you can decide whether you want to let your significant others. Or if you're really men and you're not, you're fearless, I'll hand them out to the entire group. Group conscience? Whatever. Whatever. All right. Could you get, there you go. Start handing those out. <laughs> Married and divorced four times, what would you need one for? <laughs> I just want to see if it agrees with some ideas I have. Uh, so, uh, he passes us out and he thinks we want to talk about forgiveness. <laughs> You know, one of the ways you can make amends to your significant other is to make this vision come true, you know. Uh, and if you want to take it even to the next level, you can take this, if for all the guys in the room, you can take this to your significant other and say, hey, honey, this is what they handed out at the retreat. Would you tune this up? Is there anything that you would change about it? And really get them to tell you what their vision is. 
and then go from there. Um, one of the single largest areas in my life for emotional sobriety has been in my relationship with my wife. Uh, my wife and I have been going to couples meetings for over 15 years, I think now. If not, it's right around that, that time period. Um, before I got married, I did it very anally. I was sober, so I was an anal retentive. And, and I went to every married man that I knew. And I said, tell me about marriage. I think, I don't remember, don't hold me to the numbers, but I think out of every adult male that I knew that was married, I think five or six told me that they were happily married and would recommend it. Virtually every other male said, biggest mistake of your life, don't do it. And it was just fear, fear, fear. And I realized there's something wrong here. They're missing, what? Men and women have been getting married for millions of years. How could this be? You know, what is wrong? And so I started the process of investigation. I realized I sure wasn't raised with the tools for how to have a relationship. And I certainly knew that if I was going to an AA meeting to try to figure out how to have a relationship, I was going to an empty well. That's the wrong place to go. So I've spent a lot of my sober time trying to figure out relationships. Um, I have a lot of things that have worked in my, my marriage. Uh, I, you heard me mention rule number one, jokingly, but that's a really a rule. There's people all over this country that use rule number one. No matter what happens, it's Dave's fault. Now, what are we going to do about it? You know, and, you know, I'll go to the couples meeting. People look at me and say, you know, Dave, you're in real trouble this week because they still use it. It's Dave's fault. You know, um, the important half of that rule is getting to the second half. What are we going to do about it? Let's not bicker over the fight and fight over this deal. But there's a whole series of rules like that. This is one of those areas where it's quick to be see, see where other people are right. You know, I go to wherever I can get the information from. Same with the last two pages of your handouts. It's on traditions and relationships and concepts in your relationships. Um, I'm slowly and surely working on my wife. I'm, I'm really, I think I finally got her convinced that maybe she might, if I can work on her a little bit more, uh, talk her into doing actually a retreat on relationships. And because and, we've got, I can see that we've got some experience that, that, that people aren't talking about. And it's, I think it's a ministry that needs to be addressed. Um, the, uh, anyway, there's, there's a lot of information that, that is out there to be offered if you're willing to pick it up and try it. You know, um, as for the forgiveness exercise, let me hand those out too. More paper cuts, exactly. Let me give you a little background on this sucker. The reason that I, that I wrote up the forgiveness exercise is it's been one of the areas in this past year. If I had to describe anything that I've had to work on, it's been this. Um, in about this time last year, my AA program changed dramatically. Uh, I was kind of in a, a it was an interesting situation. I was I was doing workshops on a regular basis, and and some events occurred, and those aren't that's really not the point of my discussion. The point was, I ended up with hurt feelings, and because I had hurt feelings, I needed to go through and figure out forgiveness again, and. I had done the, the standard things that you normally would expect, and, and I didn't get the results that I expected. And a lot of the people that I had a hard time with were people in AA. And uh, they were my closest friends in AA. And I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know how to react to it. And it was starting to eat my lunch. And I didn't know what to do about it. And I knew I damn well better figure out how to forgive these people at a different level because you know, that's the neat thing about your ego. You do an inventory, and you learn something about your ego, and you learn how to block it off. You know, if it comes at you from this direction over here, you do an inventory, you say, oh, I see the ego. So the ego realizes it can't come from that direction anymore because you build up a wall there. 
so the ego next time will come at you from over here. And you write another inventory, you can put up a wall over there. Well, I had been doing enough inventory work that my ego was coming at me from a direction I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. So I had to go back to the very basics of the big book and the program and say, you know, what was Bill Wilson talking about? What was the foundation tools he was using for forgiveness? And, uh, and go back and start from square one and to find the forgiveness in my heart and be able to do that. And those exercises have carried me over so well that I'm still doing this exercise on a regular basis. I forgave those people months and months and months ago. I made the amends. I did the things that I had to do. Yet I've still continued on with, the, with part of this exercise that you'll see what we'll be talking about tonight. Um, forgiveness exercise. Uh, this first part comes from a thing called Our Daily Bread. It's a newsletter. It was March 202, 2002. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, it says, we don't, let, uh, we don't forgive to let those we have harmed us off the hook. We forgive to turn the offenders over to God and to get the bitterness and anger out of our stomachs. If we don't forgive, our own anger will consume us. That's my experience. I'm sure if you're in this room and you think about it, that's been your experience. Especially if there's people right now in your life currently that you haven't forgiven. It's eating your lunch. You may be doing a pretty good job and you got a smile on your face and you got the mask going, but you're submarining pretty bad. There's some real stuff eating your lunch. All right? Uh, TIC, the next one, stands for Together in Christ. Uh, says, many of us still regard forgiveness as a human act instead of a divine act. We all tend to want revenge. Hmm, does that sound like any alcoholics in this room? What character would that be? Hitman, right? Revenge. We like to remind people how much they have hurt us. We often have the misconception that if we forgive someone, we're condoning their actions. To the degree that we refuse to forgive, do we drag resentment around with us? If we're not willing to forgive and move beyond our anger, then we're stuck. Forgiveness is not a gift we give to someone else. It is a gift we give to ourselves. Hopefully that alone will be enough of a shift for you to realize that it's a gift you give for yourself. The problem is there's a price tag for that gift. In order to get the peace and serenity, it means you have to let go of the attachment you have to the person that you resent and you hate and you loathe and you despise and who you want to see burn in hell forever. You know, or the person that you want to crawl before your altar and beg for forgiveness so that you can tell them how badly they really hurt you and make them suffer the same way that you've suffered. But what's the biggest promise in the big book? Our problems are basically of our own making. This is a gift we give to ourselves. All right. Um, it is not something that we do because the other person deserves it. In fact, the other person may not even know that we harbor anger or resentment against them and may not even care. Boy, does that get us when they really don't care. Yeah, I hurt you, but who cares? You know? <clears throat> but we are the ones paying the check for the price and carrying around the burden. Say to yourself, I'm not forgive my not forgiving cost me too much. I refuse to remain stuck at this point in my life. When we ask him, capital H, God gives us the grace to freely forgive even those who have wounded us deeply. Alright? And here's what I came up with. To deal with forgiveness, I had to follow the plan that Bill, Bill W. laid out in the big book of the 12 and 12. Yes, I said 12 and 12. Right. Big book thumper talking about that other, that other book. Um, the moment we pondered a twisted or broken relationship with another person, our emotions go on the defensive. Let us remember that alcoholics are not the only ones bedeviled by sick emotions. Moreover, it's usually the fact our behavior when drinking has aggravated the defects of others. In many instances, we're really dealing with fellow sufferers, people whose woes we have increased. If we are now about to ask forgiveness for ourselves, why shouldn't we start out by forgiving them one and all? Before I could take my first amends on this incident that I was talking about, 
I had to forgive each and every one. And I had made the attempt, but I knew it wasn't complete because it just still didn't quite sit right. And until I had gotten complete forgiveness, I knew I couldn't face those people face to face, you know, which meant that I'm the kind of person now that I've had so much experience writing inventory. I like to write the inventory, get the amends out of the way, get them done. I don't like to leave them hanging out there. And some of these amends hung out there. And as hard as I tried to self-will at getting those things done, there were some of them just couldn't be done until it was God's time. And the last one wasn't done for like eight months before the other person would see me for being able to go make that amend. Um, the steps eight and nine are concerned with personal relations. Interesting. First, we take a look backward to try to discover where we have been in fault. Next, we take a vigorous attempt to repair the damage we have done. And third, having thus cleaned away the debris of the past, we consider how with our newfound knowledge of ourselves, we de- may develop the best possible relations with every human being we know. That's including those people we won't forgive. All right? So the exercise is you list the people that you're not willing to forgive. You write them down. In this room, we don't have to take the time. You know in your heart, they jump right off the page. They're probably right about now, they're sitting right about here in your throat. You guys who haven't forgiven, you know exactly who I'm talking about. All right? Now look what this next paragraph says. It says, there are cases where ancient enemy rationalization has stepped in and justified conduct, which which was really wrong. The temptation here is to imagine that we had good motives the reasons, when reasons we really didn't. And in parentheses I wrote, we focus on what they did to us, not what we did. All right? We've heard, somebody shared it today, and I don't remember when it was, but I heard somebody say, you know, they were talking about having a hard time but making their amends, but the other person had done something to them. And that's what we focus on. The freedom comes in you taking care of your side of the street. That's where the gift comes in, with the forgiveness exercise. Learning daily to spot and admit these correct these, defect, these flaws is the essence of character building and good living. An honest regret for harms done, a genuine gratitude for blessings received, and look at this: a willingness to try for better things tomorrow will be the permanent assets we shall seek. All right. You notice the next thing I wrote down here: Have you made amends for the harms you did? I guarantee that virtually I don't think there'll be a soul in this room. There will be a person in here who has not forgiven someone and who has actually tried and gone and made the amends. Can't be. Why? Because we have to forgive before we can truly go to make the amends. So if you haven't forgiven, you couldn't have gone and finished the amends. Now, delusion you may have think you have, but the reason you haven't been able to forgive is because there's still something that you haven't, there's an amend you haven't made, you haven't written it down, you're not clear on the harm that you did. The reason you don't want to forgive is it means that you're going to have to look at the harm you caused and release that harm, which means you have to cancel. Remember the emotional banker I was talking about? You caused the harm. Let's say I caused the harm to Rick, but Rick caused a bigger harm to me. I can forgive Rick, but I got an emotional banker that's ringing up interest against Rick. I know in my heart the exact same is true for him, which means not only do I have to go to Rick, I have to make amends for my harm that I caused him. I have to figure out a way to cancel Rick's emotional banker, the IOU that I owe to his emotional banker, which means he gets off scot-free completely as far as the hitman is concerned. That's not a very equal proposition. It doesn't guarantee me that he's going to come bow before my altar you know, and profess his undying sorrow for the act he caused me. Who's talking to me in my head? It's my emotional banker that's got his IOU because my emotional banker's talking so loud I can't see the damage I caused him. Does that make sense? That's really what we're up against. We are being driven by fear. We don't have a choice. 
It's the fear that we have to get down to the crux of. What is it that I'm truly afraid to let go of? Our ego is telling us that it's the harm, the justice. There's no justice if he gets off and I have to forgive him. The reality is we're whipping ourselves. The forgiveness isn't for them. It's for us. As soon as we can make amends for our side of the street, and it was in the amends portion that I was jammed up. I couldn't see that. Are you guys with me? There's a lot of heads nodding. I want to make sure I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really clear on this myself. So I want to make sure that I know how to transmit this because it was something that I was, I mean, this is fresh stuff. It's stuff that, that in some extent is still going on. Are you serious? Are you just busting me? <laughs> okay. Sure. Absolutely. God. I'm in, I'm in a weird place here because there's people here that know the players. And I'm, I will not per perpetrate a harm in this deal. So I'm going to be talking in generalities. If it doesn't make complete sense, please forgive that. Okay? Bear with me on that one. Um, I had an event occurred, and I don't even understand what the actual event was that occurred. But everybody ended up with, with bad feelings, including myself. So what are the characters that came up with within me? The, the judge, the jury, the executioner, Rambo, the spiritual man, they were all chattering at once. All Big time was the traitor because these are AA people. These are my people and they're my close people. And I was feeling harmed by them. So it wasn't just that I had felt that I was hurt. I had felt that my spirit was crushed. So the traitor was out. And anytime, and I'm very conscious of that. When I see the traitor, I know I'm in deep, deep, deep trouble. So I write inventory. I write the resentments out. I do the things I have to do. I fifth step it. I have these harms. I know what I'm, I'm clear on some of these harms. So I go through the process of trying to make these amends. But I know before I go to make amends, I have to forgive each and every one of these people by the instructions. I've been sober a long time. I know that's the deal. So I go what I think to be the exercises I need to for forgiveness. I go through that process. All right? But in your heart, you know you've, there's something not quite right. I know that I, I'm saying to myself what I say to everybody that I work with. If you've forgiven and you can't forget, then you haven't forgiven. And that's exactly where I was. And now I'm in this panic place because I've done the tools that I've got in my toolbox that I'm familiar with. Now I'm out. What do I do? So I start talking to people and everybody's going, I've never been in that situation. I don't know what to tell you. And now the real panic starts to set in because I know that I'm blocked. And I know that if I don't make these amends, I may drink. So what do I do? So I turn to God and say, God, inspire me. What am I supposed to do? And I start, naturally, I start praying and meditating for these people. I start doing love light meditations. That's helping. And then I just got inspired. Well, let's go back and look in the, in the big book, in the 12 and 12, at everything that you, that's in there about forgiveness. And there's really a logical process in there about forgiveness and what Bill tells us to do. And the, he talks in there about the need to forgive everybody before you start striking out and trying to make amends. If you're going to go ask for forgiveness from someone else for the harm you caused, then you need to forgive them before you go. But you have to be clear on the harm you caused. That was the first thing I was having trouble with. I thought, in my mind, they had done this to me. You know? But I still can't get free of this. So obviously, I know the promise is, my problems are of my own making, so I've got something wrong inside of me that I have to figure out. So that's when I started looking at the emotional banker because I knew that the trader was around. Anytime the trader's around, the emotional banker's around. So even I, I, though I could forgive the harm that they 
might, and this is all perceived on my part, they may or may not have harmed me. It's my perception that I was perceiving that I had been harmed. So I perceive this, and I say, okay, I'm going to forgive them for that, but the emo that still left the emotional banker, and that's what I was sensing. There's something wrong in it I haven't forgotten because the emotional banker is still racking up interest. Until those SOBs come to me and make amends for what they did to me, I'm not going to forgive them completely. It's always going to be sitting in the back of my mind. Is that going to answer where you guys are going? Okay. That being said, this is our course. That's the next thing here. The quote comes from the big book. This was our course. We realized that people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Though we did not like their symptoms, column two, and the way these disturbed us, column three, they, like ourselves, were sick too. And here's the instruction that the big book gives us. We ask God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience we would cheerfully grant for a sick friend. Who am I praying for there? For me. For God to come in and soften my golf ball. To soften the crust on my heart. For me to be able to find true forgiveness. For God to... Because I didn't have the power to kill the emotional banker of my own. I'm powerless. I, that was going to have to be the grace of God which meant I'm going to need to have prayer, 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 and meditation, prayer and meditation. And it took weeks and weeks and weeks of prayer and meditation every single day for my heart to soften, to get, cancel out the emotional banker. This is not one of those things where you do a four-step, a fifth-step, and it's, then boom, you're free. This was something that took me a while, a long while. All right. Then the 12 and 12 gives us some more information. It says, when prideful, angry, jealous, anxious, or fearful, we acted accordingly, and that was... Here we need to only to recognize that we did act or think badly. Try to visualize how we might have done better and resolve with God's help to carry, out, carry these lessons over into tomorrow, making, of course, any amends still neglected. Once I started entering into this prayer regime that I was doing, then I needed to give a, get a vision in my head of what was it that I did wrong. See, where I, I was taking offense for their behavior, they weren't intentionally trying to hurt me. I was perceiving harm. They were reaching inside my wall and touching something. They had no idea they were touching it. And I was reacting, feeling hurt. Does that make sense? That's where the problem lay. And I couldn't see that until I sat down. I softened my heart enough with prayer to be even willing to look and then try to develop a vision of what really occurred here. As soon as I could see that they weren't intentionally trying to harm me, then there was no conspiracy theory, you know? It killed the whole thing and poof, there went the emotional banker. There was enough there just to say, you know, get out of here. That's ego. You're gone. Next. Then I was able to start down the path of amends and truly mean the amends and going through. And that took God's time. And I went and I made the amends I needed to make. All right. So here's what I had to do. I had to write out how I can be helpful to these, to these people, right? That's what the instructions of the big book. How can I be helpful? What does it look like to be kind and tolerant to, the, to that person? The big book gives us a thing. It says God will show you how to... Take a kindly and tolerant view. Write it out. What does it look like for me to be kind and tolerant to the person that I absolutely loathe and can't forgive? All right? And that's what I had to do. And then here's the prayer regime that I used. I even wrote the prayers out. There's three sections there. Just fill in the blanks with their names. All right? Once that whole process was done, then underneath the line at the bottom of the page are the instructions that the big book gives you when you go to make the amends to these people that you can't forgive. In the past, you were not able to forgive. Once you feel like you're spiritually ready, that you've truly forgiven, the big book gives us, and the 12 and 12 gives us some stuff. It says, uh, um, if an enemy, go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit. All right? The reason I wasn't forgiving them is because I felt they were an enemy. 
Confess my former ill feeling and express your regret. That was a hard pill to swallow, you know. Their faults are not to be discussed. We stick to our harms. Very, very difficult in, in my case, just to sit there and bite my tongue. And the, the actual amend, I went and made this amend, and the person sitting there was just unloading on me. Uh, and 99.9% .9 of what they were unloading on me, I felt was 100% distorted, out of the box, wrong, wasn't even the right. And I just had to sit there and bite my tongue and smile and, and pray. I was literally, I was praying. I don't even know how long it was. It was at least an hour. I was sitting there praying. And when I got to the amends questions and I asked those questions, they said, sit there and shut up and listen to what I have to tell you. And I had to get some more. And I just listened. But I was spiritually, I was protected. I was wrapped up. I was bulletproof. I would not have been had I not done this exercise beforehand and got myself spiritually ready. We ask God for strength and direction to do the right thing. No matter what the personal consequences may be, we are willing. You know, the person, personal consequences were I was going to look really bad because I realized in this process of making this amend, in order for me to forgive, I had to be absolutely silent. So for weeks, I had to keep my side of this disagreement quiet and not say a word. Meanwhile, they're over there telling everybody in the world, I'm hearing all this stuff coming back to me about what I did and what a scumbag I was and how I'm not working the program and I'm not working the steps and I had to keep my mouth shut. So my camp is quiet and their camp isn't. Very difficult to do. But let me tell you, it's one of the best growth experiences I've ever had in my life, to stand on principle. All right? We must not shrink in anything. We don't delay if it can be avoided. You know, right on down the line. Emmett Fox has got a great quote, and I won't take the time to read it. He talks about, it takes two people to, be, to create a prisoner, the prisoner and the jailer. The jailer is just as much a prisoner as the guy he's in charge of, because he's locked in the same walls to make sure the other guy doesn't get out. You know? The reality is, is there's an ancient Chinese parable about the man who gets thrown into prison. And for 30 years, he has no idea why he's in jail and he's, he's falsely accused. He has no clue. And every day the guy comes and opens up the door and puts in the food and the bread and the water. And the guy's in there and the, he's marking it off and he's praying to meditate. Can't figure out what did I do? Why am I in prison? But he never bothers to ask the jailer why he's in prison. But every day at the same time, the guy and finally says, you know what? I'm going to kill myself. But just before he gets ready to kill himself, he says, you know what? Before I do that, let me talk to the jailer. But he looks out the, the gate and there's nobody there. And so he reaches out and grabs a hold of it, starts to shake it, and the gate just opens up. The door wasn't locked. So he looks through, he kind of walks out, and he walks up the stairs, and there's two guards standing right at the entrance of the door. He looks out, and they don't react, and he gets out, and he walks through the courtyard, and out the main gate of the prison, he's free. The whole moral of that parable is to realize the reason he was in prison was because he put himself in the prison. It was a self-constructed prison. Our problems of our own making. I created the entire thing in my mind. Was I harmed? Who knows? Who cares? It doesn't matter. The reality was, if I didn't deal with that stuff emotionally, I was going to drink and die. You know? That was the deal for me. I've spoken enough. It's time for Mark to share. I'm Mark, alcoholic. Mark. You ever heard that uh, quote... Uh, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You ever heard that? That's going to tie into some things I'm going to talk about. I, I told you earlier, Dave's talking about some concepts. We've all heard over the years a lot of different concepts about forgiveness. The barometer for me is my own personal experience. 
most of the things that I uh, have read or heard growing up did not fit my personal experience, nor did they work for me. Uh, I.e., I know one of the stories in the back has talked about a lot about you pray for someone for two weeks. My experience is they don't need the prayers, I need the prayers. Uh, that never worked for me. Um, a lot of that stuff never worked for me. But I, I want to I show you what has worked, and uh, I'm going to give you some things to think about you know, relative to this, this area of forgiveness, if you will, based on my experience. Uh, go back to something Dave touched on, in, uh, and you don't need to open your book up, but it's in page 66. Much like above everything, it's not talked about where it says, I turn back to the list for it. This first three columns, this third column, holds the key to my future. Now, I don't know, I think that's a pretty important statement. This list holds the key to my entire future. What are they talking about? I mean, that's, you don't think they meant our entire future, do you? <laughs> my experience is that's exactly what they what they meant. So you, at least a logical question. Well, why don't we talk about this? The key. Add something right there. It was absolutely critical that I was sitting across from somebody who understood and had been down the path. If I was sitting across somebody who had the exact, and let's say an old timer with 40 years of sobriety who had the same baggage, who had never cleaned it up, they would have looked at me and said, ah, you poor kid, the same exact thing happened to me, those dirty SOBs, you, you, your, your feelings are okay, you know, go do a 90-90 and you'll be all right, you know, and I'd have died, it'd have killed me. There's a real importance on, on who is hearing the work that you're sharing, because if they're going to co-sign it and talk you out of it, they're signing your death warrant goes on to, to talk about we avoid retaliation or argument. Why? Because I wouldn't treat sick people that way. Now I want to go back to this because I'm like Dave. I'm sure there are some of you in here that have this idea or there's some people that you, I'm just not going to forgive. Or you have some ideas about yourself in terms of some things that you've done. Now, what I want you to consider, and maybe what I want you to get over is that you have never intentionally chosen to do that, nor did they. They are sick, spiritually sick. The extent to which I am spiritually sick is the extent to which I live a life driven by fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity. And the more that that's going on in my life, the more harm that I'm going to put out into the universe. Um, this is my experience with this whole area. Uh, I haven't had to work with forgiveness in a long time. In a long time. Why? Because this is all I'm going to get out of the Hewlett Packard. That's why. <laughs> right? I understand the hard drive. Right? I understand there's no choice. Right? And if you don't understand that, I, again, this wisdom, this incredible big book. Okay? Mark. Once again, of course, we're so self-centered. We actually think people get up in the morning and we come up and they're harmed today. You know? <laughs> Not, no, no, nobody does that. The extent to which you feel separate from instead of a part of is the extent to which you'll still go through life creating harm, if you will, in the process of trying to get your own way, always trying to defend. Right? Um,
I had a lot of stuff in this area, you know. I had 13 and a half months in Vietnam and some years of dealing drugs in a drug culture and some family stuff. And I mean, something had to happen for me in this area of forgiveness or I was never going to be at peace. What I did not know is the extent to which I was unable to forgive is the extent to which I never felt connected with you. See, if I got one person out there I can't forgive, or let's say myself as well. If I got that out there, then I'm blocked, you see. Four step, facing me rid of that which has me blocked from God. And as I begin to understand more and more and more about this issue of going through life driven with no choice, I begin to get free of all this remorse and shame and guilt and everything else around my actions and my behavior. And then I also really begin to understand that it's the same with you. And that in truth, that self that we can be rid of with God's help, the more that that self began to dissolve, if you will, the less there was this issue ever that came up of forgiveness. Because there's nothing to forgive. And you, again, if you break it down, why are you forgiving someone? Because there's a part of self that is either hurt, threatened, or interfered with. Well, what if that part isn't there to begin with? So that's some of my experiences that, you know, in the big book, in the ninth step in several places, gets into this forgiveness. And using the words, page 77, go to them in a helpful and forgiving spirit. You cannot manufacture a forgiving spirit. You know, I really think it's cute when the drunks get in this 90-10. Well, 90% of the harm is his fault. And 10% is mine. And my response to that is good. Then you're 100% responsible for your 10. You know, it's just... It's just ridiculous. You know, I think often of my parents, my brothers, and the incredible stuff that happened. And being able to love them exactly, you know, as they are. And this was more with, say, myself than... Then so with them, but you know, you, you get to this area of when you start to wake up a little bit and you start to look at these people that have loved you and cared about you. If you're like me, uh, it just shook me down to my core because I, you know, you sit there and I, I've thought of my mother particularly, but lays there for year after year and night after night. And is the phone gonna ring and has Mark been scraped off off the pavement somewhere? You know, it's like, how do you set that right? You know, you, uh, how, do you, how do you clear that up? How do you get free of that? You know, well, some of it is that you no longer do that and you're accountable and responsible and you call with a lot of frequency and you know, there's a dramatic change in your behavior. And the other thing is to understand that I wasn't waking up choosing to do that. And those, in, in those thing areas, I begin to get free of that. And as that began to happen within me, then my ability... To forgive, if you will, others reached completely new dimensions because I began to understand I did get my best shot from my parents. Uh, I got the best their hard drive could give me. Uh, that's the way it was. You know, it's not going to change. Same with my brothers. Same with and the list goes on and on and on. And uh, I'm a free man in that area. There's, there's nothing to forgive. There's no one to forgive. Uh, I can't tell you the peace in my heart behind that. You follow? There's a custom they they do, and I think it's in India. It's in one of the cultures, but 
it's a great thing when they meet somebody, they bow, and what they say is basically, as I forgive you before they ever meet you. <laughs> I thought to myself, that's a great, we need that in AA. <laughs> Hi, Dave, I forgive you. My name is Mark. <laughs> See, because they understand human nature. They understand that we, we fall asleep sometimes, and when we're asleep, we're not feeling connected with God, we'll do or say things that produce emotion, make me feel hurt. They understand that. They understand on the front end, but uh, anyhow, that's that's all I got on it. There's uh, the beauty of forgiveness, particularly the really, really, really deep harms. In my experience, is that they really are the diamonds that have been dropped into the manure. I've had the greatest epiphanies in my life and the greatest changes spiritually is when I can truly get to the core of what was driving me the worst and the things that were driving me the worst were the things that hurt me the most. Some of it was the behavior that I exhibited when I was drinking. You, know, you, you put the central nervous system to sleep with alcohol and you're surprised why you know some of this bizarre stuff happens. You know, It's all the stuff that you, take, you want to take to the grave you want to talk about. You know, the, the bestiality and the homosexuality and the you know, the, the gang rapes and all the rest of that stuff that happens, the lovely, nice side of the alcoholism that nobody likes to talk about. And how do, you, how do you deal with that? If you were the recipient or if you were the, you know, the person that was perpetrating those harms, how do you, how do you deal with that? You know, and if you can come to terms with that by using the tools and really, truly get spiritually free from that, man, the hardest things in your life. And, and just look around the program, the people that have gone through things like that, that have had, you know, a child murdered by somebody and they go and they make amends to the person that murdered their child for the the, the terrible insensitive feelings that they had and, and the hate and the you know the, the the true poison that was killing them they're the freest people in the world it, it hasn't been a downer it has been just it's rocketed them into the fourth dimension it's been tremendously powerful powerful experience um, two things I'd like to share um, one is is if if you have a harm that you can't forgive for somebody that's in these rooms, one of the tools that I use that I did not talk about was, imagine if you went out drinking again and the person that you refuse to forgive is the person that shows up on your doorstep when you call in a group for a 12-step call to come save you. Yeah, it, it hurts. It changes your tune. It really changes your tune. That's where the rubber meets the road. Um, there's a guy by the name of Samuel Johnson who lived in the 1700s. <clears throat> he was a lexicographer. Anybody know what a lexicographer was? I had to look it up. Lectu lexicographer is a guy who writes dictionaries. And he was witnessing, and he said, God himself, sir, does not propose to judge a man until his life is over. Why should you and I? When I read that, man, it touched a tone in me. Who in the heck am I? There's somebody else that's got a heck of a lot more power that's going to do the final judge. I don't need to do it. Uh, guy by the name of Gerald uh, Jampolsky. Inner peace can be reached only when we have practiced forgiveness. Forgiveness is letting go of the past and therefore the means for correcting our misperceptions. Interesting. Our misperceptions. This came alive for me after I'd gone through this work. Our misperceptions can be undone now. And this is possible only through the process of letting go whatever we think the other person may have done to us and whatever we may think we did to them. 
Through true forgiveness, we can stop the endless cycle of guilt and look upon ourselves and others with love. Forgiveness permits us to let go of all thoughts that seem to separate us from each other. Without the belief in separation, we can accept our own healing and extend healing love to all those around us. Healing then becomes a thought of unity. As inner peace is recognized as our single goal, forgiveness becomes our single function. When we accept both our function and our goal, we also find that listening to our inner intuitive voice as the source for direction becomes our only guide to fulfillment. We are released as we release others from the prison of our distorted and illusory perceptions and join with them in the unity of love. It took on a whole meaning for me, completely different. Um, 12 and 12. There's another kind of hangover, that which we all experience. Whether we are drinking or not, that is the emotional hangover, the direct result of yesterday and sometimes today's excessive of negative emotions of anger, fear, jealousy, and the like. If we would live serenely today and tomorrow, we certainly need to eliminate these hangovers. It requires an admission and correction of errors now. Don't think that you can put this stuff off. God's grace lasts only as long as ignorance. You're going to get sick of hearing me saying that. We've woken up the beast this weekend. You thought we stirred the pot yesterday? Guess what? We turned on the blender tonight. You know? There's, the time clock has started for you. If you've got this stuff, your life's on the line. And it's been on the line. It's nothing that we did to you. It's been on the line. You were just blind to it. Now you can see that the tiger is ready to strike. Um... Around the year with Emmett Fox, here is a sublime precept that we call the golden rule because we are fundamentally all parts of the great mind, because we are all ultimately one. To hurt another is really to hurt your, oneself, and to help another is really to help oneself. The fatherhood of God compels us to accept the brotherhood of man, and spiritually the brotherhood is unity. Remember what I said, God has no grandchildren. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all related. And that really becomes true in the fellowship. We're really a family of choice inside the rooms and the last thing that I want to share about forgiveness is a uh, I forget whether it was Mike or, or Barefoot Bill that sent this to me uh, a Native American tale told many times around the sacred fire an old grandfather said to his grandson who came to him with anger at a friend who had done him an injustice let me tell you a story I too at times have felt great hate for those who have taken so much with no sorrow for what they do but hate wears you down and does not hurt your enemy it is like taking poison and wishing the enemy would die. I have struggled with these feelings many times. It is as if there are two wolves inside me. One is good and does no harm. He lives in harmony with all around him and does not take offense when no offense was intended. He will not fight when it is he will only fight when it is right to do so and in the right way. But the other wolf ah, the littlest thing sends him off into a fit of timber. He fights everyone all of the time for no reason. He cannot think because his anger and hate are so great. It is helpless anger, for his anger will change nothing. Sometimes it is hard to live with these two wolves inside me, for both of them try to dominate my spirit. The boy looked intently at his grandfather's eyes and asked, Which one wins, grandfather? And the grandfather smiled and quietly said, The wolf that I feed. Which wolf do you want to feed? That's the question for tonight. We still got a few minutes. Let's open it up. Anybody want to talk? Unless you got some more. Well, no, we'd like to. Did you want to do the God calling? Did you find that thing or no? Like to, uh, well, I did, but it happened to be the blank page. Oh, it was a blank. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to hear from uh, 
like to hear from some of you all in this this area. Do we have those uh, mics? Yeah, there's the mics going on. Anybody got a something that they've that they really couldn't forgive that they managed to forgive? My sailor friend. Bring the mic. It's not on. Let's try the other one. Is the other one on? Is that, nope. Let's try it again. Nope. Nope. Try it. There you go. Yeah, you're on. I'm Ron. I'm an alcoholic. Ron. Yeah, this this is a, a great thing. Uh, this this uh, forgiveness. Um, I too knew nothing about forgiveness, and I got divorced in uh, in. Uh, 1978. I wasn't all that great about making my payments every month, but I, I, I did the best I could considering everything, and I kept receipts and what have you, and I, I really wasn't, uh, I was still drinking, and I still wasn't close to the family at all, but anyways, as years went on, uh, I started in sobriety trying to get back with my son and blah, 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 and, and trying to resume and get some kind of relationship going, but he was on drugs, and I, and I really couldn't get a a good relationship going with either my ex-wife or my son, you know, as far as at least being able to talk things. So, but we did talk, and I did send money, and I bailed him out of a lot of situations. Out of the clear blue in 1994, about a month after Christmas, I get a knock on the door, and I'm sitting at my computer, and it's a constable, and I get hit with a summons, and the two of them had showed up in Florida, and they were suing me for support, saying they had never seen or heard from me since 78. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I was just blown away. I mean, I just, I felt that, like you said, the betrayal, the traitor. I mean, I was just, I, I just couldn't understand it. Well, anyways, I, uh, I went down. I had to go to court and everything, and I, uh, I, I just was a mess of emotions. I, I, wanted, I was homicidal. I wanted to kill him. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't understand why they would do this to me. Well, anyways, as the days were in the week, this thing ended up going a long time. And I would go to bed every night and toss and turn and twist and get up and oh man, I mean I was I mean I can understand why people had people killed. I mean I just didn't I was a mess. So then I realized in my program I was talking to people. I started to kneel down every night and I tried to do the 21 day stuff, you know, uh, blessing them and everything. <laughs> it wasn't working, you know. So <laughs> my sponsor says, uh, and I, meanwhile I got a lawyer for 250 an hour and. Uh, and, I, and I'm sweating this thing, and they're going after some big bucks. And it, and I, and I'm digging. I threw away most of my receipts. And it's really it not looking good at all. And so I just I continued this praying, and I said, Lord, I kept asking God. I says, I, I can't forgive them. I don't even know how to start that process. But but I says I wish them the best. And I says and, and I started going at it this way. I says, teach me to forgive. You know. Teach me to forgive, because I don't know anything about this. I want to kill them, not but I forgive them. And I did this every night for about another 60 days. And finally, you know, the interesting thing is this. The last court date was July the 12th. This all started on February 1st. And I'm sitting in that courtroom, not knowing that's going to be my last day. And they're in front of me about two rows, and their backs are to me. I got there a little late, but my case wasn't heard yet. The judge was finishing a one before us. And all of a sudden, I could see the backs of them, and I and this thing came over me. Honest to God, as soon as I'm sitting here, and I says, "I'll accept anything this judge says today, 
And, and in my heart, I says, I know that what they're doing, they really don't understand why they're doing what they're doing, and I'm okay. And I just had, I was awash, just whoosh, just washed right out. Just the most wonderful feeling in the world. I didn't give a shit about the case. <laughs> the judge gets right into this thing, and he starts hearing and rattling. He had already come to a decision. I guess that's what it was. And he's all through, and my lawyer says, pretty good, huh? I didn't even know what he had said. I couldn't understand legal talk anyways. And anyways, that's what happened. He says, you won. He says, he threw it out. I says, you're kidding me. He says, no. He says, uh, you, 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 you're golden. You're all right. He didn't believe them. And you know, I halfway through that case, my son even walked into an AA meeting in Stewart, Florida. And, and I felt, I want to kill him. But I... I had walked out of the thing that day, and I forced myself to walk up around, walk up to him, and I give him a hug, and I squeezed him, and I says, it's okay. I don't know if I meant it. I don't know if I meant it, but I, I did it. And the long and the short of it was, after this case, two years later, my son calls me. He's running from the law in Massachusetts. He's a burglar, and he jumped bail. And he calls me, and he's on the phone with me, and he's crying, and he's asking me what to do, and I gave him, I told him things what I thought he would do. And later on, you know, about two years ago, this is all three years ago now, two years ago, he comes, he calls me on the phone and he's talking about this whole thing. And he says, you know, you know what, you know why I called you that day? He did go back and face the thing and go to jail and get it all done. But he says, you know why I called you that day? I, I said, I don't know. He says, you hugged me outside of that meeting that day. He says, you hugged me. And he says, I couldn't believe you did that. You really hugged me. And he says, I just knew that everything was going to be all right if I called you. you know? I think that's, that's, that's what it's all about. I think we have to even do things if we don't understand how to, why we're going to do them. I really didn't love him that day I hugged him. And I didn't wish him well. But something made me squeeze him and hug him. And I, even, you know, I, and I just did. I squeezed him. And I, uh, I just didn't know. But... I think God works through us in wonderful ways, and I think the wonders we don't understand sometimes, you know. But I mean, I, but I, I, I just, I think we just have to do what we think is the next right thing. And the ego's a killer. My ego didn't want to hug him. My ego wanted to kill him. And I, I mean, and I don't mean that literally, but I mean, I felt so angry at him, you know. Isn't, so God has this tremendous power with us, I think, that he can make us go through that and do things that even are beyond our capability. So I'm glad to be here. Glad Thank to be you here. so much for that gift. Wonderful story. Anybody else got forgiveness? Yeah, just hand the mic. Hi, my name's Anne. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Anne. Um, I have a story of forgiveness that really shocked me. Um, I, growing up, I was one of five girls, and my mother was a heavy drinker and alcoholic, and I got, I was the apple of her eye until I was like, um, I don't know, until I really was out of college and doing things that were getting back to her through my friends who would tell their mothers and really terrible embarrassing things to a mother and um, slowly she put two and two together and realized that I had been like cunning and deceitful and lying and and over this was like um, 
25 years ago now. She sort of cut me off. And I got married, and she was very cold. And she never has liked my husband. And then I had kids, and she would be giving all kinds of things to the other grandchildren, and furniture to my sisters, and all kinds of things. And I would always just get this coldness. And, and I thought it was because she's the active alcoholic, and she hates that I'm sober. And I once had said to her, well, when I was nearly sober, and didn't stay sober, something like, if only you'd get sober. And I thought, well, my amend to my mother is um, my sobriety and my living, you know, a good life and a sober life. And a responsible life. And, but slowly, I kind of, like, just pulled away. And she hurt my kids, I thought, and so I wouldn't go and take them anymore. And she was anti-Semitic to my husband. And so I just was, you know... I'm sober a long time, and I thought doing the right thing. And uh, in I'm I live in New York City, and oftentimes at the end of the meeting, people will say before the Serenity Prayer, um, "Let's take a moment of silence for the sick and suffering alcoholics." And it was like as if there was a pile of beans on one side of my like real like enmity for my mother. Maybe pity, but more enmity that I was so wronged. And um, and I would and I would just see her face like filled with self pity and remorse and all kinds of things. And, and during that time of that moment of silence after the meeting, I would think of her, and I would my heart would really like think, oh, I wish she could get sober. And little by little, over the period of a couple of years, um, something shifted in me. And I think my sponsor and I had a long talk one day at the beginning of this. And she said, if you have any hope of that inheritance for your kids, <laughs> there's a little money involved, um, you better you know, have lunch with her a couple of times a year. Don't take the kids, don't take your husband, just you go by yourself. And so I started doing this, and it was not great. It wasn't, you know, she saw I was making an effort, but it was very cold and very stiff. And um, it was a day, like about a year ago, almost a year, more than a year last spring, and it suddenly sprang into my head all the stuff about my responsibility, about my deceit, and about the things that had come back to her, which I'd never really thought about, like that that would have hurt her. And I wrote her a letter, and it was quite melodramatic, and I wept as I read it, and then I read it to a couple of people, and I rewrote it very simply, taking out all the drama. And <laughs> I got a letter back from her saying that it must have been a very hard letter to write, and that it moved her. And... Um, and then the next time that I saw her, and every time since then, the relationship has been like, it was like light speed, like whoom! It was like 25 years, or more than 25 years, of 30 years maybe, of this terrible, sour, like tartness, like completely evaporated. And these loving phone calls, to talking to my husband on the phone, like, please give my love to the children, and just like a shocking thing. just. Because of me, it wasn't even that I really did anything. It was such a gradual process. It was like I didn't do anything. It was kind of done to me, I guess. And um, that's my story. Please, would you hand the mic up in front of you? 
Hi, I'm Mary Malkal. I just want to say, a long time ago, my father drank for years, and then he all of a sudden just... stopped drinking. And at that point, no program, so it was pretty bad. But anyway, I was a great swimmer, and for years I resented him. I tried to do some of the physical stuff he liked to do. He was very active that way. And I guess, as a child, like, trying to get his approval. But anyway, through the years, I couldn't, I never let him see my kids. I could never forgive him, and it was holding me, and I was going through the steps, and someone, and I do think God works through people, said to me, you know, I mean, why wasn't I in competition? I mean, I really could have done well. And she said to me, you didn't, you were not in competition, because you're not in competition, because you're not in competition. I never signed up for it. I mean, I blamed my father. I mean, it's a small thing, but it freed me of the resentment of my father. I blamed my father for not doing this. I mean, he did the best he could with his hard drive, like you say, and his life was hell when he was young. So, but it freed me up. And as before he died, we were seeing him and stuff, and a little reserved, but I opened the door. So, thank you. Thank you. You know, a comment on, there's nothing but love, and when you can get rid of that which blocks it, the rest will blossom. You know, I remember at times having to do some things in this program. There's this issue of, well, I think they might have done more. And I still remember this man saying to me, and I'd say, well, why do I have to do that? And he said, because you can and they can't. Because they're sound asleep. You're close, but... You see, and see, that's the truth. That's why you reached out your hand. She couldn't. Your mother couldn't. You reached out 25 years. Boom, just that fast. There's only love. The goal is, what do I do to get rid of that which is between that manifesting itself? There's a harm in each person's heart. You've got a harm in your heart, and they've got a harm in their heart. The difference is, you've got both keys. You can unlock your heart, and as soon as you unlock your heart, then you can reach out to them and unlock their heart. That's the difference. When you're spiritual in this program, we don't like to see the fact that we've got both the keys. That's particularly true in divorces. A lot of people have been talking about divorce in here. I've helped a number of people go through divorce. Brutal business. Absolutely brutal, brutal business. 99% of the time, there's unfinished amends involved in that. Once the divorce starts, I guarantee you there's going to be more harms that get occurred. But before that, before the divorce ever started, there was unfinished amends. Particularly if there was sobriety around and you weren't practicing the principles at home. And I was helping one friend of mine, and he came to me, and he knew the divorce was on the horizon just a matter of time, and then boom, the divorce finally starts. He's like, what do I do? And he starts talking about money and everything. I said, well, wait a minute. There's a harm here, right? He said, yeah. And I said, so do you want to be free? He didn't realize what a trap that question was. Well, yeah, I want to be free. I said, great. Give her everything. No matter what she wants, give it to her. Give it to her. Walk away. Ask for one thing. 
goes, what's that? I said, ask her to take your name off the mortgage. That's it. It's all you want. And he swore and stomped and carried on, and but he did it. The divorce was over in like 30 days. I mean, it was like boom, boom, boom. She got his name off the mortgage. Literally within, I don't know, three, four months later, he finds this house on a lake. He buys it by himself because his name wasn't attached to the mortgage. So now he can buy a, a second house, and they're friends today. They're not close friends, don't get me wrong, but they're speaking together. They're friends, you know? The, he, and what did it cost him? There wasn't that much money in the house anyway. It was, it was all the emotional banker stuff. And when he walked away with love and said, whatever make you happy, you want the house, it's yours. You want the dog, it's my dog, but yeah, it's yours. You know, and he came back to me a couple months later and he said, you know what? I went over and I saw her again today and she even said I could have the dog if I wanted. Said, but my life is so good. I can't have the dog all the time. I, I got bathes, I'm checking out and he's doing all this stuff. His life is great. <laughs> You know, so your view through the pipe may not be what's the best thing. Forgive with love and anything is possible. There was another hand over here. Hi, I'm Ken and I'm an alcoholic. Um, you touched on something before about uh, uh, forgiving somebody in a program um, because they might save your butt. And uh, that happened to me. Because uh, um, today I have, uh, you know, family members in recovery, but, uh, you know, younger, um, I also was like the apple of my mother's eye. And when I got well into my disease at a young age of 13, I ran away and, or uh, she kicked me out and she was well on her disease. And uh, there was pretty much no talk. We didn't talk. Um, I was pretty much disowned. And I had a lot of anger, a lot of hatred. Um, I did manage to get sober um, and come into the rooms at 19. And uh, at the time, I think I had, uh, I think I had over a year, I had uh, found out that my mother had tried to commit suicide and that she was in a rehab. And I did not want to go there. And uh, I wanted to go in there and, uh, you know, I told her I loved her and I tried to forgive it to the best of my ability at that time. And um, and I even went to see her at her first anniversary. And, uh, you know, it, I wound up going back out and here again, not talking to her for many more years. I came back at uh, 29. Um, you know, I gave up with alcohol and uh, I tried to quit drinking on my own and uh, I couldn't do it. After eight months, suicide was like a strong option. And why um, I called my mother, I don't know. But she came and got me upstate because I was contemplating suicide. And, uh, and you know, to this day, like I say, she gave me that second life. She came because she always says, like, you were there for me at my first anniversary. Nobody else in the family, you showed up. And I knew that you were so angry, but you tried to forgive me. And, uh, and it's funny how it comes back to you. You don't know wh why you're doing it. Because at the time, I did not want to forgive her. I was so angry. It was like, you, 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 you know, for all the things uh, as a child growing up. So, you know, that's what, it, that's, you stirred that up in me and made me remember that. Because it brings tears to my eyes because I can remember her walking in a room crying and here's a woman that never cried and being like, please don't leave me. Please don't do this to yourself. And, uh, and it saved my life. 
So just thanks. Thanks for welcome. We've got time for one more real quick one, and then we're going to wrap it up. <clears throat> to be quick, uh, I was taken through the book the first time, starting in 1990, at four years sober. And when I got to the eighth step, we had a different thing we did with cards than what Dave's been talking about. But uh, some of you probably know that exercise. And um, one of the people on my list was uh, this ex-girlfriend that I'd mentioned. Um, and I got to the part where it's like, okay, what am I going to say to the person? Uh, and uh, got clear on the words I was going to use. The book's pretty clear about that. We can't say anything that's going to imply that they have anything to do with what we're talking about, but they caused any part of it. And uh, So I went and made amends to this, this ex-girlfriend for the relationship itself, for the emotional harm that I caused, and left it at that. I knew there were some things that I couldn't bring up because it was going to cause her more harm. Uh, she was in the middle of an inventory and ended up uh, blowing her sponsor off and drinking again. And what she had said, that I wrote on the back of the card, she said, don't just check me off your list as another amend. Be a friend. If I need if I need to talk to you, be my friend. So I would see her from time to time when we would talk on the street. Eight years later, she's coming off of heroin and, and withdrawing from alcohol, and I get to be one of the two people to go 12-stepper. And uh, she was living in Chicago at the time. And I got her hooked up with my old grand sponsor, Paul, and his home group up there, and and they're pretty fanatical. Um, and she ended up finding a group of women that used the big book as their primary source material and, and was getting taken through the steps. She'd been sober three years uh, last Christmas. I mean, one of the hardest things for me is to, to maintain that posture of there are some wrongs we can never fully write, but we are we were we would write them if we could to maintain that posture of readiness. And she called me up and said, I'm going to be in town. Can I talk to you about some harm I think I've caused you? And... Uh, and it wasn't just psyched to hear the harm. It's like I pretty well knew that because I'd written my inventory. I'm like, okay, we, you know, this is it's uh, more for her. Um, but what I was given the advice by that Alan lady I talked about, she said, if you're going to go make amends, you need to make amends for, for what you've done. As far as the abortion, I said, I can't do that. I can't bring it up. I can't imply that she had anything to do with it. And, and I was given that direction. If she brings it up, you have the green light to, to address it all together. I need to tell you. It was midnight mass or go talk to this girl at an Alcathon. And she said, this is the only time I can really meet. I've only got a couple days. And, um, and I got to sit across the table from her. And when she said the actual words, then I knew we could talk openly. And within an hour, we were both weeping and holding each other's hands across the table um, because we knew that we couldn't have done anything different. I wanted to say thanks to Dave and Mark, especially for being here this weekend. But there's that last missing piece that I couldn't get at until Mark said it, you know. This lady in my group took away my right to judge myself, and that's a, that's a hard piece to give up. Because I, that, that, that third column is like, that's the cross that I hang myself on, and it's hard to get free of that. But thank you. You know, there's this concept that life is a pool, and you can throw a negative stone in the pool, and the ripples will ripple out, and they'll hit the sides, and they'll come right back at you, and you'll feel the pain that you caused. Or you can throw a positive stone in the pool, and the ripples go out, they hit the side of the pool, and they come back. It, what kind of stone do you want to throw? I love doing the good deeds because not only does it touch everybody, but it comes right back at you because of the spiritual mirror principle. Um, we've stirred the pot pretty heavy. We've touched a lot of things a lot of people don't want to take a look at. You don't have any choice now, sorry. Um, don't be surprised if you have even more bizarre dreams tonight. Experience them, let them be. All right, don't fight it, just 
let it let it be. I think it's what it's 7:30 tomorrow morning. Is that correct for the prayer meeting in the other room? 7:15. 7:15 tomorrow morning. There's the prayer meeting. We're back in here. Um, let's see, at nine o'clock tomorrow. Um, if you'd all bear with me for just one more second, if we can, you got anything more? I just want to close with a prayer. Okay, if we just get quiet for a second and and I'll close, take us out with a prayer. Dear God, we thank you for this wondrous opportunity to, to share your love and, and peace and serenity as we stretch this path together. And, and we, we thank you so much for the grace that you've brought into our lives to take away the, the fear of seeing the truth we need to see. And now that we've seen the truth, Father, I ask that you help us to face that truth. And until the spiritual body can again be together, I ask you to keep us safe and protected as uh, we go out from here to do our best to live your will, whatever that may be. In your love, we ask it. Amen. Good night, guys. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? I'm Dave. I'm alcoholic. Uh, as always, a little administrative stuff. The 50-50 is going to take place after the next break. So if you need a 50-50 ticket, buy it on the next break because as soon as we start the next session, we're going to do that raffle. And uh, you guys know Barefoot Bill? Where is he? It's over here. Barefoot Bill is another big book thumper, and he's an AA historian, and he put he's offered to donate a series of his tapes to throw it in there. So we're going to have three tape series raffled, and then we'll do the big cash. I think it's like, uh, I think we're running around 240 250 bucks. So you're going to get 125 bucks if you for your half if you hit it. So and the other half is going to a good cause to the sprinkler system here at the Wilson House to preserve this. Tickets are my wife, Brenda, right there, standing there with the... My lovely wife, Brenda. My best friend. What? Spokes wife, yes. And I would like to give her, I hate, give her another round of applause. She's been doing the cookies and the candy and, you know. And even though they're not here, I think we should give, uh, for those of us that are married and have kids, you know, and for example, my mother is watching my kids. You know, I know there's a lot of people here that their spouses are watching their kids and stuff. Whoever's watching your kids, your dog, your cat, whatever, we should have some gratitude in our heart because without them, we would not be able to be here. So let's give them a round of applause. Um, how's everybody doing this morning? I talked to several people. They were, some people were, were pretty, pretty blended up yesterday and <laughs> came up and told me so. <laughs> Uh, I hope that the whole purpose of this is not sadistic. We're not here to, that's not our intention. But that agitation that you guys feel really is the true message that, that this weekend was designed to draw out of you. It's like, it's like a bad tooth. You know, you go, nobody wants to go to the dentist. Nobody likes, well, you might like your dentist, but nobody likes to go to your dentist because it hurts. But there's such a relief when you finally get that bad tooth pulled. And the, the abscess has been there for a while. All we did was poke at it a little bit, and now it's your opportunity to take up, to fill in, put in your own filling, you know. And with the help of God, you can do that. Um, before we get started today, this morning, I thought we might just get quiet because I know there is some agitation. Everybody's kind of 
I can sense there's an energy in the room. So why don't we just get quiet? We'll do a little meditation and and uh, and then we'll uh, say a quick prayer and start this thing off. Thank you for this opportunity to come together again as a spiritual body. And we ask, Father, that you help us to set aside everything we think we know is going to transpire here today and remove the fears of what we might see about ourselves. And we ask that you help us to have an open heart and an open mind for your guidance and direction to help us to make sense of this agitation that we feel inside and to help us to use it as a springboard to motivate us to continue on this path that we may become closer to you through experience, Father. And uh, we thank you for the grace in your name. Amen. So uh, <clears throat> today we're going to talk about uh, 10-11. We're going to try to make some sense and put together the pieces of what we covered. All the exercises have been handed out. People, some people ask some questions about, you know, uh, do I have to have this all done by tonight? <laughs> no. <laughs> the, I probably, yeah, I should have been telling you this yesterday. I thought I did tell you yesterday, but you know, let me find out what I think I say and what people hear are two different things. Um, those exercises are to be done at whatever speed you feel in your heart you need to do them. Some people are in a lot of pain. Well, if you're in a lot of pain, you know, if your hair's on fire, I suggest you put it out pretty darn fast. If it's just a smolder, well, you can let it smolder a little longer if you don't mind the smell, you know. If you're just sitting too close to the heat source, you might like the feel of the warmth and you want to sit there for a little while. You know, enjoy the warmth a little bit more before you eventually get to the point where you get up and move. It depends on what level of uncomfortability you're in. You know, I would suggest that you don't put these down for, for too long. Uh, I would finish them probably within a week for sure, you know, so that you don't lose the connection. So you don't pick up the sheet and go, now what were we doing? I don't really remember. Because if it means having to pick up the cassettes or the, the CDs or something and then listen to six or seven CDs to find where it was on which CD and then try to cover, most of us don't have that kind of energy to get to it. And if we wait until, you know, we're in a real bind and we go, oh, that's right, I got these great things. Maybe, maybe this will be my silver bullet that will solve my problem. It's too late, you know. Continue with the process at your own speed. Um, I mean, somebody was asking me last night, I think it's a great suggestion if your sponsor isn't, isn't here, go home and say, hey, you know what, I had this really neat experience this weekend. Would you be willing to do this with me? You know, share this stuff. Carry this message to others, you know. And share this experience that you've, if you've had an experience. I think most people here have had an experience this weekend. Um, the big shift in consciousness has already occurred for most of us. Most of us, when we hit that third step exercise, there was a, I could, I don't know if you felt it, but I felt a huge shift in the room. And that is your motivation from that point forward. Sit down and take a look at the four absolutes. I mean, how well do you want to get and how soon do you want to get well? That's really what we're talking about. It's personal judgment. The people that really need this, their minds are probably so closed that they're not willing to do this and they'll come back to this after they've crashed and burned. It's the people that are in the agitated state. They know they've missed something and it's, they're sort of thinking about maybe it's time to go through inventory or whatever. Those are the ones who are really going to benefit from this, this seminar. At least that's what my feeling was when we started. And I think that's still true today. Um, so... Uh, that's my, 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 my take on that. Uh, do you have any ideas about that? 
<laughs> He's just looking at me. He's sitting over there. Sure, I have a lot of ideas about that. <laughs> I'm Mark, alcoholic. Mark. <laughs> Good morning. Um, a couple of you were asking me uh, how Dave and I met. And I gave a short answer. He stalked me. <laughs> he, uh, True story. Yeah. He, uh, I think he'd got a hold of some tapes or something. And he's pretty persistent. Uh, and anyhow, he finally, we finally hooked up in Austin, Texas, I think, in 1998 and maintained contact with each other. And then we got asked to do the Fellowship of the Spirit in New York last year. And so we uh, thought it'd be a good idea to rework the steps together and get to know each other better and swapping fifth steps. And uh, so uh, he flew in, and in our arrogance, because we're so spiritually fit, uh, we figured this would take a couple hours. We'd go out and have a nice lunch and get on with our life. Well, nine and a half hours later, uh, we were still sitting in my house. Uh, and it was, uh, and, and, you know, it was one of those fifth steps of laughing and crying. And Because uh, Dave said something that's important, you know, you... I've done a lot of work with the steps, and so has he, and so uh, I, I saw the benefit of he and I being able to sit down based on our pretty much a mutual experience and how important that was. Uh, uh, we were both really stuck on some stuff that uh, we hadn't been able to get free of, and it took uh, sitting across from someone else with that kind of experience, if you will. And uh, So, you know, if you ever swap fifth steps uh, with someone, you know what happens is you have a relationship that's unlike anything you had before that. And, and uh, uh, I think off that experience, with, there's two fellowships in AA, you know, and, and uh, the one we experienced after that was the Fellowship of the Spirit. Dave and I are connected in a way and will be till till we die that uh, without that experience, we'd have never been connected. And so uh, uh, since then, of course, we've just uh, maintained contact with each other. So that's, that's kind of how that came about between uh, uh, he and I. But... Uh, you know, what we're going to talk about today for me is the heart and soul of the whole program. Uh, uh, the steps of one through nine are designed to catapult you into the spiritual dimension of the 10th, 11th, and 12th step. Uh, way too much focus uh, spent on the first nine steps. All they are is a bridge. That's all they are. It's a course of action. First three step considerations. First step, am I powerless? Uh, do I have an unmanageable life? Uh, can I do this thing on my power? Can I not drink? Can I live life? Am I satisfied with my life? And the realization that, that no. So in the second step, you know, do I need power? And it's really the bottom line of the second step. Do I need power? Come up with a concept of that power. That'll make some sense. And uh, choosing that power is everything or nothing in my life. And uh, from that position, then you, you have a third step decision. You know, are you convinced your life running your will cannot or will not work? And my experience uh, is, quite frankly, for most of us, you really got to come face to face with that sober. You know, you see, you, you, you'll sit and you'll go in and you'll look at your life when you're drinking. It's pretty easy to say when you're drinking that I'm, you know, I'm convinced my life in front of my will doesn't work. The, the time you really need to look at that is sober. Uh, how, how are you doing sober running your life on your will? And... Uh, if you meet that requirement, then you then the book really finally tells you what's wrong with you. Uh, it tells us some things we don't necessarily like. Number one, that all my troubles are my own making, uh, and that they arise from within myself, and that the root of my whole deal is selfishness. And at that time, you must see the connection between your selfishness and dying an alcoholic death. Because uh, if you don't, you won't do the rest of the work. 
See, at that point, the book has moved you completely away from the fact that alcohol is your problem. Matter of fact, they even tell you alcohol is but a symptom. Mark, that's not your problem. This is your problem right here. And they present you with an interesting concept, and that is that the very thing that has created your misery and suffering and will kill you from drinking, you can't do anything about. At that point in time, you it says you had to find God. You had to have God in your life. And uh, they presented us with a proposition, are you willing to quit playing God? And, and we look at that, and, well, how do we play God? Well, I... You know, I know how my parents were supposed to have been and how I was supposed to have been raised and how you're supposed to be and, you know, on and on and on. And you begin to see maybe why life has worked the way it is. And then you do that incredible third step prayer. You know, you're offering all of yourself to God to build with you and do with you as God wants, not as you want. Uh, you know, it's kind of like for me, I guess, for 36 years of my life, ran around in self-will and you hit that third step and it's like, God, I really appreciate it. But you know what? I'm, I'm resigning here. It's just, I'm done. It's, I'm glad you let me romp around for a little bit doing my deal. Uh, just hit all the walls I want to hit. So uh, from here on out, uh, I'm your guy, okay? Uh, that's kind of the way that, that goes. Uh, it's like I said, for me, the third step today is very humorous. I, I'm going to make a decision to turn my will and life over to that which is my will in life. So it's, it's kind, of, kind of that thing. And then, then you get to the nuts and bolts. I'm going to face and be rid of that which has been blocked from God. I mean... Dave's made the comment about getting closer to God. Well, of course, closer to God is an illusion. Um, uh, you know, we're like fish in the ocean swimming around asking, where's the water? And, and that's the way it is with God, you see. Where isn't God? So really what happens in 4 through 9 is I get rid of that which has me blocked from being aware of that which is always present, within and without, at all times, conscious contact, swimming in water, never not swimming in water. And that's all four through nine do. Uh, you, you enter the fourth step with a complete sense of separation. You're a fish in the water asking, where's the water? And these old timers tell you you're surrounded by it, and you go, yeah, it don't make no sense to me, you know. Uh, so that's the whole purpose of the inventory. You write a resentment, a fear, and a sex inventory. And uh, the purpose of those inventories is to see how your self-will operates, getting, trying to get what it wants to make its arrangements. And... Uh, um, the book is very clear with you and I then why people don't stay sober. They don't, resentment is the number one offender. It's why we drink. Uh, every relapser I've ever worked with, we boil it down, we can find the drink behind a resentment. And resentment, the spiritual disease behind resentment is I'm blocked from the power. And at certain times I have no effective mental defense. I, I don't have the luxury of being blocked. I must be aware that I'm swimming in water at all times. The resentment takes me out of that. So you're right, the resentment inventory. And then we talked yesterday about the key to your future. You begin to see in, the, in, in that fourth column, uh, they're spiritually sick, I'm spiritually sick, where am I at fault? And the book does a wonderful thing, which is, is it begins, you have to drop the word blame from your life and take, take responsibility for your life, if you will. You write the fear inventory and you see the very fabric of your being is interwoven with fear. See, the, the greater my sense of separation from that which created me, the more I will be consumed with fear at all times. Fear, dis-ease of the ego. And uh, so you write the fear inventory, and then you write the sex inventory. Sex inventory is, again, a manifestation of my sense of separateness, if you will. So you write those three inventories, and you turn around, and you do a fifth step. Fifth step, what's this whole function? Fifth step, you're trying to get pulled away from the ego. And, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, the fifth step, the big book says it's life and death. I, again, I think that's fairly important. You know, 
There's some interesting sentences in there. See, that's another topic. It tells you before the fifth step, this is life and death. That's another, we don't talk about that sentence. What does the book mean? It says this fifth step is life and death. Those are fairly significant words to work with. My experience is it's the death of the ego and the life of the spirit. That's what that's about. So who I do fifth steps with is very, very important. If I go into a fifth step and you're concerned about how I feel, you'll kill me. See, if I'm concerned about how you feel, I'm useless to you. You understand what I just said? See, I'm useless to you. See, I've got to love you enough and get far past that. The ego is not split in half by kindness. So you do that fifth step and you get done. And the interesting thing, if you look at all the promises behind the fifth step, those promises manifest because you begin to get pulled back from the ego. You get done reading this inventory, right? And there's some incredible stuff in there. It says you can be delighted. You can look the world in the eye. You can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Your fears fall from you. You feel like you're walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. The drink problem has disappeared. And in the fifth step, the book is very clear. That's when you begin to have your spiritual experience and not before. The reason it says that is, is the extent to which you are still ego-bound, feeling separate from. You have no sense that there's a spirit that resides within, and that's who you really are. And in the fifth step, you finally have an awareness, which is why those incredible promises are there. Uh, it's like it does when you spend an hour in review after the fifth step. You thank God from the bottom of my heart that I know God better. How is it that I know God better? Because really the inventory for me shows me who I'm not. And I get to experience on an intuitive level who I am, which is why I know God better. The wave is a part of the ocean. The wave has all the properties of the ocean, but it can't be the ocean. Yet the wave knows it's a part of the ocean. That's a way for me to talk about what happens to me in a fifth step. And you get done with that. The sixth step is all you've done is made a list of the defects that your self-will is used to operate in the universe to get what it thinks it needs to be okay. And the, and the horrible dilemma in that, is, of course, is that doesn't work. And so the question of the sixth step is, well, here they are. Seventh step is, well, what do you want to do? You know, I, uh, We're the only kind of people, We the sixth step, we ask a question, am I willing to let God take this? Yeah, only a drunk would ask that question. You know, just, <laughs> let's see, this is what's led to all my misery, suffering, you know, you just, yeah, I gotta, let me think about this. You know, <laughs> Just, uh, I mean, we're, I'm telling you, we're, it's kind of like bitter end or door one door of spiritual living. Look, can I think about that? You know, other people would catapult through the door, you know, but uh, not us. And then, the, see, and then the seventh step, this could, idea. Could you explain the bitter end? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the seventh step, you're offering all yourself to, to God, good or good and bad. And uh, that's it, call it the asset liability line, but basically it's just take all of me. And because uh, uh, at that point, that ties back into your third step. Uh, build with me. Do with me as you want. So take all of me. And you no longer concern yourself about your life. And then, of course, in the eighth and ninth step is where you're going to begin to... Seventh step, you're going to connect to that power. Eighth and ninth steps where you begin to feel your sense of oneness with your fellow human beings. And uh, so you go, you make your list and you begin to go out and you, you make amends. And... Uh, what happens, based on my experience, is there's literally states of consciousness through the steps. And as you get to the ninth step, then you're going to basically begin to experience life in a whole other way. You're going to have a sense of awareness of what I call there's a life beyond your life situation. Prior to me getting to the ninth step, I was consumed with my life situation where I worked in my job, blah, 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 blah. That's all I ever talked about, boom. And then 
something starts to happen to me, you know, and then at that point in time, of course, the book is going to begin to introduce us to the 10th and 11th step, and I'll, I'll let Dave start to talk first. The 10th and 11th step is new language. Yeah, it is not language of the intellect. It is not language of the mind. It is language of the spirit. You cannot practice the 10th and 11th step without having done some work in 1 through 9. You, it's absolutely impossible. Because what 10 and 11 ask you to do is literally it's a state of consciousness. It's things that will arise from within you that you cannot produce. Uh, and, and I'll talk more about that. And so 10 and 11 are practices to let me be aware of the fact that I'm constantly surrounded by the water, i.e. the power, the power behind the name, right? Uh, and, and to stay in touch with that, you know, uh, incredible thing. So for years, my first 10 years in AA, when I wasn't making this a way of life, 10 and 11, I realized now were words, none of which I could practice. I just couldn't practice them uh, because there was still too much self intact. So with that, I'll let Dave go ahead and share some of his experiences with uh, 10 and 11. How many people in here uh, <clears throat> believe in coincidences? I used to. <clears throat> had way too many things that I can't explain, you know, and, and it doesn't really matter whether you believe in them, don't believe in them, whether they, you've, it's your experience. You know, Mark started talking about uh, how we met, and it, it's funny, I, I really did stalk the guy. Um, <clears throat> what happened was, uh, I, I uh, listened to some of Mark's tapes, and, uh, he and Joe Hawk and, and and I'm a tape junkie by trade, um, and it's uh, it's helped me dramatically. I really believe in there's a ministry in the, in, the, in the tapes, and I belong to a tape of the month club, and so I get a, a fresh tape because I travel a lot. And no matter where, if I'm going to go to work, whether it's to the military or to the airlines, it's an hour and a half in the car, you know. So there's a tape. So I I literally in the front seat of my truck I have a case of tapes. That, and and when you get to become a tape junkie, which I'm not advocating, uh, you hook up with other tape junkies. It's just like dealing, you know. And you start <laughs> you start trading tapes, and it's like, oh wow, hey, I got this great set here. And you start loaning each other tapes, and then you know, and it's a great source for resentments, you know, because who the hell did I loan that set of tapes to? They never give it back to me. I gotta get them back, you know. And um, uh, how to get off on that tangent? <laughs> anyway. Um, because I had a prayer and meditation life, one morning I was in, in prayer and it just came to me, you gotta go and find Mark Houston. I said, okay. And I thought about it for a little while and it came to me again and it came to me again. And I, I've learned in my life that coincidences pay attention to that little inner voice. And uh, I had been doing some workshops, so I started talking to the people that I that do the taping. I called Glenn, I called several other people and, and uh, said, I need to track down Mark. And everybody said, well, we don't know where he is. He's disappeared. You know, Mark. If you know Mark, he just he moves. He moves a lot, and uh, and it was at a stage in his life where things had happened in his life, and he he explained it to me when I finally tracked him down. Is he went on a walkabout? He put all his things in storage, and God sent him to go be with his mom and and do some things in his life, and and uh, uh, he was out doing his deal. And uh, when he resurfaced, and I I gave up after that point. I just I put the word out and I let it go. And I'm talking. Probably a couple of years later, uh, somebody says, oh, yeah, you're still looking for Mark? You know, I got a new email address for him. Here's his email address. So great. I fire off an email to him. I said, hey, and I'd like to like to meet you. You know, where are you? And he said, well, here's my phone number. Give me a call sometime. 
and I'm in Austin, Texas. And the next day, I had a trip that was going to Austin, Texas. And I said, hey, how about coffee? You know, do you believe in coincidences? I don't, you know. So he comes by and picks me up, and I'm looking in his car going, you look a lot different than I thought. <laughs> you know?